When you open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, I, I have the, the privilege over the next, uh, I get three weeks, so uh, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple passages in this book. We've been studying this book for quite some time in our Monday morning study, and um, it's just a, a good setting to kind of, I get my three-week series to, to look at this morning as we look at God who is the, the divine warrior as he fights for his people. We read through this passage. I'm going to read 1, 1 through 2, 10. We're going to see this opening section here and, and then up to Moses' birth, miraculous birth here. So let's listen to God's word. These are the names of the son of Israel, sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt, then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied, grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, and in all kind of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipporah and the other Puah, when you serve as as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, But let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because of the Hebrew women, they're not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt with well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And a sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. 
Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he came and he became her son. And she named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Familiar story for us. Perhaps you've been around. We know the story. We kind of know the the account of of Egypt and the Exodus. Maybe you've seen the movie. You don't know the story in that case. So that's why we're going to read it. We're going to see that and understand what's going on here. There's a single storyline or one of the main storylines of Scripture that we, we find in vivid color in the book of Exodus. And that is the story of a battle. That, that, that from beginning to end of Scripture, from, the, from Genesis and the fall and the, the curse on the serpent and the, the declaration that there would be a enmity, a war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman to Revelation chapter 20 where Satan is finally cast into the pit forever and the new heavens and new earth follow. From those two points in Scripture we find a battle is present within the world in which we live and always has been there. The, the battle between the seed of the serpent from serp, the Satan himself and his offspring and the seed of the woman that is Christ, that is God's people. Between the agents of God and the agents of Satan. The theme is certainly seen in this book. It's seen throughout Scripture, but in vivid color do we see it in the book of Exodus and throughout the storyline. The lines are being formed. So we read it, we see to some degree along ethnic lines between the Egyptians and the Israelites, but that's not exactly the case. That we see that this battle isn't an ethnic battle, it's a spiritual one. It's a spiritual one because it has to do not just with a, a group of people It's and who they are, what, what label they might wear. It's who they worship. It's who they serve. It's who ultimately do they trust. And here we see that the gods of Egypt are pit against the God of Israel. It's not just against the Egypt's, Egyptians against the Israelites or Moses against Pharaoh. It's the God of the Israelites. It's the God who has created all that is. And he's called the Israelites to be his people against the gods of Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself being one of the primary gods there. As we look at this book, we see that the Lord, the, the, the one who has made his promise, his covenant to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, he's the warrior. He's the one that's going to go to battle in this book. And he's the one that's stepping into the story as we see in this chapter and beyond. The predicament that Israel finds himself here is one that took something like 400 years to make, give or take, for them to be enslaved and oppressed. It's, it's a predicament that was not unknown to God. It was actually foretold by him in Genesis chapter 15 as he's talking to Abraham there. He says this is going to be the case. They will be taken and enslaved for 400 years and they will be released. So it's not unknown to God. It took 400 years to get to this point. And even as we get to chapter 2 when Moses is born, it's still another 80 years before he steps into his divinely appointed role as mediator, as deliverer of Israel. So there's 80 more years that's going to pass here. And even as he engages Pharaoh in this time here in just a little bit, it's going to take even 10 cycles of judgment before finally 
the Israel will be freed before they will be expelled out of Egypt and brought into the freedom of, of following God himself. And so it wasn't that it took 430 years for God to, to, to wake up and find out this was the case, that somehow 430 years was the process of time that God used. You see, God would accomplish his task. But it's not just the end that God is interested in. It's the the means that he's interested in. As we read this book, as we read through this, the different passages, we want to see the pattern that God has that he's put in place. The means through which he is using to be able to demonstrate the way he does anything. He certainly accomplishes his plan, but in this case, he's using a period of time and people and cycles of judgment to do that. And so over this week and the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at different perspectives of this divine warrior to, to learn about his methods, to learn about this pattern that he puts in place in Exodus, because it's ultimately going to tell us something about the gospel story. The pattern of slavery to redemption is important for us to see in reality, in real time, in space, in Exodus, and then a, in a reality as well as we look ultimately to the cross. That God's actions here, his interests, as he goes through and fights the battles for Israel, isn't just destruction. It's not just to destroy the enemy. Although it's important for us to note that anyone who stands in his way, anyone who won't bow the knee, will find themselves ultimately destroyed. But God's ultimate aims, his ultimate ends, are to display his grace. The graciousness of who he is. To demonstrate the greatness of his sovereign mercy on people who do not deserve it. And so as we look through this, we might have to look below the accounts and the events themselves, but but they're there. We will see his grace is present, even as he is doing battle with the enemies against his people. So so that's where we're going to go. We'll look at these perspectives of this divine warrior. This morning, we're going to look at the the, the silence of chapter 1. But first, just a little bit of an overview Bit of an overview of the, of the, the chapter or the, the book of Exodus. It's, it's, um, it's connected uh, with, the, with Genesis, of course. Follows that. It's written by Moses uh, just prior to the conquest as they crossed the Jordan into the land. Uh, we have this period of 40 years where one generation dies off and another generation is raised up. And it's during this period of time we believe that Moses would have written this. And so he's writing this to encourage them, to give them a picture of who God is and how they are to follow him, to give a picture of his ways. And so the first half of this book is a picture of of God's defeat of the gods of Egypt. And so we see these battles that God goes to and through the the different plagues and eventually uh, rescuing the people out of um, out of Egypt and, and, and killing the, the army at the Red Sea. But the second half of the book, he brings them to himself, and it's about him demonstrating his presence within them, enable them to worship. One way I like to frame it, I've read uh, in, that, that helps, is that the book opens with the people building for Pharaoh, and the book closes with the people building a tabernacle for God. And so you have this construct, this contrast between the beginning and end of the people. So it gives us an overview of the book, a quick one, but the the book is really a a critical building block and interpreting way to understand the gospel. It is from slavery to redemption. It's slavery from a master who is destructive, who wants to hurt them, to a master who loves them. 
That, that's the picture. That's the, the pattern we want to see through this book. And that's the pattern that will inform our understanding, certainly in a couple of weeks when we ask the question, what does it tell us more about the gospel story that's there? That God is in the interest of saving from slavery and re- transferring into his kingdom under his care that's there. The passage we're looking at exactly here, 1 through 2.10, it's the opening part of the story. It connects Exodus with the Genesis story, and it reminds us of how it started. How all this got going was 70 came up to Egypt, were called up because of a famine. Jacob brought his family up because Joseph was there. You know the story is Joseph was there and found in, in good uh, good relationship with Pharaoh at the time and the people come up and God rescues them from a famine and establishes them there in the land and they have the, the chief land, the, the, the prime land for, for raising animals there in, in Goshen. So they come up and God provides for them and cares for them. And then this chapter describes the, the downward spiral. What happens over the course of time for them to move from such being such good standing to be enslaved and oppressed such at the very end of this account, we see that it escalates to the point of even killing the sons of Israel. And it explains this movement for the reader of how did this happen, or actually what has happened. He doesn't really explain a lot of how, except this is the process that's there. And so he describes the ever-increasing plan of sub- subduing them, of forced labor, of harsh treatment, and then ultimately of killing, of taking the lives of their sons that's there. And so that's, and then of course the, the miraculous birth of, of Moses in that context that comes out of that context, the, the rescue or the deliverer of Israel born in this kind of way. See patterns there. But this morning I want to, we look at the, the, the silence. Next week we're going to look at more the way God implements his rescue plan. But as we look at the, these, these years of silence of, of people who are oppressed, we see that there's, a mysterious hand of God. There's a mysterious difficulty that we find in the midst as we look at this period of time. One of the more subtle observations of, of these verses, verse 1 through 2.10 is this, is that they span 350 years. 32 verses give us 350 years. Seven generations of escalating oppression, seven generations of escalating slavery, and ultimately to the point we see where they're killing children. And Israel finds themselves in this escalation, in this period of time, 350 years of that. And, and you can see the escalation throughout the text. We, verse 8, it says that this... this um, line that, that uh, there arose a new king over Egypt that didn't know Joseph and so wasn't going to follow the same pattern as previous pharaohs, wasn't going to show him the same kind of goodwill and, and, uh, and good treatment they had done in the past. And so they, they see in the midst of the, the growth of Israel, they say, well, let's deal shrewdly with them. That means let's outsmart them because they're multiplying and they're so great and so strong that, that we have to outsmart them because we can't outpower them. And then go, it goes on to verse 11. It describes the taskmasters they set over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then in verse 13 and 14, the, the ruthless treatment they were given and heavy burdens were placed upon them. And that word ruthless is used twice there to describe the kind of work that, were, that they had placed upon them on attempt to control them, to subdue them. 
The whole process of how they got there, we're not exactly sure what kinds of policies did Pharaoh institute, economic or social or political, to kind of bring it to the point where they would submit in this way. We don't know. We're not told. All we know is over the course of years, this is where they find themselves in oppression, being under the rule of someone else with no freedom whatsoever, having to work for him, for his benefit, for his glory, with no choice, very little choice of their own. This plan escalates in verse 15 because they continue to grow to the midwife's plan to to take them and to kill the the sons at birth. And of course you see there that that the, the residual presence of their understanding of who they are is there and they refuse and they they have this plan that's quite interesting and then and pharaoh realizes that no plan at this point has been successful and so in verse 22 he invites everyone to be a part of the process of exterminating by killing the sons to try to control the growth of israel that's there so moses covers 350 years in these few verses describing the horrible treatment of israel at the hands of the egyptians the, the, the generation after generation are born and live in oppression and slavery and then die. Many are killed as a result of that. It's, it's easy to read over that and not just to stop and say, well, what's going on here? How is it that these chosen people of God, the ones who had received the, the promise of Abraham and the promise, one of the, the parts of the promise was this, those who bless you, I will bless and those who curse you, I will curse. For 350 years, soon to be 430 years before they're actually taken out of the land. How is it that that's possible? How is it that we find in this, in these verses silence without any explanation at all? How is it we find apparent absence of God in the midst of this? Now, now Moses doesn't describe a whole lot. He doesn't tell us. He just says this is kind of how this took place and he doesn't tell us why. This is an experience without explanation, as one of the commentators put it. That's what chapter 1 is about. Now, now to complicate things, it's not just a situation that they found themselves in. It's one that actually God called them to. How was it that they actually got to Egypt? They were called there. They were told to go there. If you turn over a couple pages in, in Genesis chapter 46, you see that, that there is, is Joseph is in Egypt and calls his family up. God actually gives the instruction and affirms their, the step to go to Egypt in verse 2 of chapter 46 of Genesis. And God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. He says that that, that they follow the lead of God in going to Egypt. He commands, he promises them, yes, I want you to go here. He doesn't explain all that's going to happen. He just says, I want you to go here. And so they they followed God's command in, in going to Egypt. And there they find themselves enslaved. There they find themselves in a situation they didn't bargain for. They find themselves in a place that God had called them in these years of slavery. It's not like the Babylonian exile later on, a millennium later, where God exiles them because of their unfaithfulness. There's no necessary reason to blame them. They were following his lead. Now the question is, we look at this, we don't want us to, to walk by this and, and not catch this, at least ask the question for us. How do we understand a God? How do we come to know a God 
who is given a blessing and a promise and then calls his people into a setting like this for a duration like this of oppression and slavery. How do, how do we understand that? I don't, I don't know. And we're going to go to some places. I don't quite know how to explain. But as believers today, a couple things we need to know. We need to know that this is a part of God's plan. This is a part of what he ordains for not just them, for each one of us. There are periods of apparent silence. There are silence. There's periods of apparent absence where those present are forced to ask the questions about what God has said he will do. As we wrestle with the reality, there seems to be a kind of pattern that we see in this. And as I look around it, I know that we, many of us, have tasted those seasons, may they be short or long, where the outcome of following God maybe brought us to a place we didn't expect, a place where there is silence, where God seems to be absent in our lives, and we wonder, what are you doing? Why did you bring me here? I thought I was following you here. Now, mind you, there's plenty of places that I have come by my own failure, my own sin, my own mistakes. But there are places where I found myself that I didn't bargain for. And it wasn't, to some degree, something I did or didn't do. And this case is one of those. It's a divinely ordained place. And these places, days can feel like Weeks and weeks like months and months like years. And the silence and the apparent absence, there's difficulty and pain and suffering and tension and not sure exactly where to go from there. And you see, this is all part of God's mysterious plan. This is what he does. This didn't originate exactly in something that that we've done. It's something that he has done and something that he is doing. As we look at this silence, we need to learn from it. We can derive some things because God is present even here. Other, other folks throughout the scripture have, said that, have, have experienced the same thing. I was thinking about the psalmist and the refrain that you see throughout the psalms in a number of places. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? In Psalm 13, the psalmist there as he cries out, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? And so this this question is a response. It's a natural response to these seasons that God takes his people through. of silence of apparent absence that's there. And so we cry out like the psalmist. Now, now in these seasons, there's there's some, some dangers. There's some inherent dangers as we walk through them that, that Scripture does address and kind of looks to. And, and then probably many more than, than I've identified. But a couple of them I want us to be aware of. Because in these seasons, certain things can grow in our souls that are destructive for us. And one is a kind of apostate spirit. One is a, a spirit that turns away the, the author of the book of Hebrews. As he writes to them, he's writing to them in a situation where there's a... Again, they're being persecuted for their faith. And the threat is that they would turn away from their faith. They would turn away from what they had embraced in the gospel back to what they had believed before. And the author of that book, seeing that, being fearful, fearful, concerned about what might happen in the midst of these difficult circumstances where it seemed like maybe God had abandoned them, he writes to them, he says, you have need of endurance. 
so that you will receive the promised reward. And he says, and I believe that you will endure. And so the, to endure in the midst of those, he's, so that one danger is this apostate spirit, to, to chuck it, to say, this isn't at all what I thought. Now, another danger, which is something like that, only in a different kind of form, is, is, is a little more insidious. It's a little more hard to see. And, and that's a cynicism. A skepticism can kind of creep into our lives. And this is where I, in, in my own life, I see this. As I go through those seasons of silence and absence where, where circumstances have, have come upon me that I didn't exactly see or, or even perhaps bring about, but something that God has, has, has brought to me, that this, it's, it's kind of a refusal to truly believe. It's a reluctance to believe in the goodness of God. Paul Miller, in his book, A Praying Life, addresses a couple chapters in relation to prayer, to, to the cynicism that can kind of breed and grow in our lives, and especially in this culture. And he says that, that cynicism is, is a reluctance to believe anything at all. It's, it questions the active goodness of God on our behalf. He says, are you really involved? Are you really here? It questions his active, it'll be his active involvement in our lives. He goes on to describe that this, that this can bring about a kind of situation for us, a, a kind of low-level doubt that opens the door for greater doubt, doubt as it begins to grow as we question God's goodness. And in, in his book, he describes prayer as both the, the opposite of cynicism as well as the antidote to it. That, that even as we might grow to question some things, as a, an optimism can be kind of, in some ways, checked and qualified a little bit that we don't lose our hope and our passion and our belief that God is at work in our lives, that he is able to do what he needs to do there. And so the cynicism can grow and prayer becomes a kind of response to us. So both of these are dangers in these patterns of our lives. Now, Moses doesn't relieve the tension for his readers. He doesn't explain why God did this. He just explained what happened over the course of time. You see, we want him to answer more questions. Why 400 years? Why did it take so long? Where was God during that period of time? Why was it so hard? Why was his silence so stark, seeming so present to them, so acute to them? Why so long? Why in the midst of these difficulties? But what's interesting is we look at this, we look at the science and they're woven throughout this passage. Moses says, I don't want you to miss this. We have the fingerprints of God painted throughout the increasing hardship that they experienced. Throughout this, we have the language of God's blessing that's woven throughout the increasing escalating hardship and oppression. Look in verse 7. After they've gone up in verse verse 7, he says, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. That verse is filled with language that echoes passages in Genesis of the cultural mandate and blessing that's associated with fruitfulness, with the blessing that is associated with, with the promise of Abraham that you would be fruitful and multiply, that you would expand and grow into a great nation, that your numbers would be as many as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore that you see there. One commentator writes in that that one verse alone, all the verbs piling up upon themselves. 
he writes that Moses packed into this verse about every possible way of saying that the Israelites rapidly increased in number. There's no other way to say they grew and they grew and they grew in every way you can imagine. And so Moses says, look at that. And he goes on in verse 12. Note the but. The taskmasters over them, there's hard labor that's put upon them and heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. You see, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that the harsher they're treated, the more they would grow. But we see the language of blessing right woven in the midst of hardship that they grew even as they were treated so harshly. And then in verse 20, note the response of the the midwives. So in verse 20, so God dealt with them, the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. How is that possible? But Moses says, don't miss this. Don't miss what's happening in the midst of the hardship. It's real. It's generation after generation of oppression and slavery and death. But don't miss that God's fingerprints are all over that, woven into these 350 years of explicit description of this harsh conditions are the subtle yet visible fingerprints of God's blessing that he wants them to see. That even in the parent silence, God was present. He's at work. Now, it doesn't mean that the conditions aren't difficult. And for us, as we walk through them, it doesn't mean they're not hard. It just means that God will leave his fingerprints in the midst of the situation. Enough visibility of him so that we can see his work, that he is there. These patterns of kind of cycles of of silence and absence and followed by his his response that we see throughout the scripture in our own lives. But we see the same pattern in, in creation. I've been thinking about this pattern this week and, and I was, I was um, running one day and, and I heard the, the cicadas. All of a sudden the, the, the noise and the reverberation of the cicadas and the, for it was just, it was amazing. You know, you kind of run all of a sudden you hear it and you go, that is, a, it's loud. And I was thinking about the 17 year cicada and I don't know anything about it. So I just did to read a little bit. 17 year cicada, what is that? The, some of you know this. 17 years, where were they? They were in some form underground. I don't know what that form was. Somebody could tell me. But they were in some form quiet. Nothing happening. No sign. No presence of them whatsoever. And then what happens? All of a sudden, out of nowhere, one spring, boom, they explode. All of a sudden, you have this kind of explosion, this noise, and this presence. But you see that... The explosion follows the silence. The the, the growth is a result of the 17 years. And we see that infused in the creation pattern, God has even woven in that same pattern of silence and nothing going on. And then, boom, something happens. And we see those cycles throughout Scripture. We see them providentially in our own lives. We see them present here in the Exodus account of these years of slavery, which we're told very little about except for 32 verses. We're told about that. So this gives us a picture of this, the way God operates in our lives. And so the question is, what's God doing? There's dangers inherent. We look for the fingerprints of God, but what's he what's he up to? In these periods of time. And we know that he's, he's at work. These aren't accidental periods of time, but he's doing something. C.S. Lewis in, in Screwtape Letters, one of the chapters that I find myself reading 
often going back to. It's on his, he calls it the law of undulation, which means it's the law and troughs and peaks of the Christian's life. And if you know the storyline of the screw tape letters, it's, it's the, the uncle, uh, demon tempter writing to his nephew, giving him advice on how to better tempt his subject, his Christian. And so in this case, the enemy is God. And in our father and such is, is Satan. So it's, it's everything's reversed. But in this, he's describing in a kind of backwards way the purpose of these seasons in a person's life and that, that the, that God uses. Re, listen to this. But he that's God never allows this state of affairs, this high state of affairs, kind of the high, the mountaintop kind of experience to last long. Sooner or later, he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscience experience, conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creature to stand up on its own legs to carry out from will alone duties which have lost all relish. It is during such trough periods, much more than during peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in a state of dryness are those which please him best. And he goes on, he cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood, that's his nephew. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do our enemy's will looks around upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks, why has he been forsaken and yet still obeys? See, that captures the heart at times. We go, how long? Where are you? I don't see you. And yet still moving forward, it's in those periods of time that God is forming us into the people. He's forming in us what he wants to form. One of the commentators, Alec Mortier, writes this. It is a trustful faith that rests in the knowledge that underpinning everything that happens to us, there's a secret, undeclared providence always at work, always providing, always purposeful, always on the side of God's people. See, we see this pattern at work in the midst of those times we have those dangers, its presence. But, but God has said, I have a purpose in this. I am accomplishing something even in these periods of time. And so how do we respond? We respond like the, the psalmist did in Psalm 13. The psalmist writes, conclusion, he opens up with how long, O Lord. He concludes with these words. He says, but I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. You see, he says, I have trusted. I have trusted. It's a a statement of fact in the past. And he goes on to say that my heart shall rejoice as he looks forward. And I will wait and see the fulfillment of that. In the midst of those times, we do cry out. We do ask the question. We see, God, are you present there? And yet he says, yes. And we, we cling to that. One of the passages that I have over the years have held on to as a familiar one perhaps too in Lamentations 3 in the middle of, of Jeremiah the weeping prophet as he mourns the destruction of Israel and wonders what the future holds he writes this in the midst of this he says yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases his mercies never come to an end they are new every morning great is your faithfulness he says yet this I call to mind What's he doing there? He's looking for the very fingerprints of God. 
saying, I, I see his faithfulness, I see his presence, I see his mercy, even in the midst of this dark time. God, in his silence, is mysteriously, visibly present. He will never leave himself without a witness, without his fingerprints present in and through those times. So his silence, though they're mysterious and difficult, are always filled with just enough grace to walk through them, just enough grace to receive from him what we need to keep moving forward. The silence is real. At times it's confusing. In conclusion here, lest we miss the overall scope of this book and where it goes, we need to see that it's never... Um, that God's silent is never indefinite, that it, it will always have an ending. At the end of chapter 2, we see that God hears their prayers and their cries, that God knew and remembered his covenant. And when God acts, when he steps into the circumstances, when he begins to move, there's an explosion of his presence that is seen and visible. But that explosion of his presence and his work is a result of the years of silence. It's a result of what he has done and woven into this period of time. And the same is true for our lives. So we look for his fingerprints. We know that in and following those years of silence, that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. We will experience that. And it will be worth the wait. No longer how, no matter how long and how hard that might be. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. Uh, that, that you give us some clue in the midst of these difficulties in our lives and these seasons of silence and apparent absence. And I'm, I'm grateful, Father, that, that, that you do pull away your hand. And, 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 and in the midst of the wrestling that you haven't left us alone, we're not abandoned. And somehow if we could see everything which we can't, we, we would know that, that you were there. Your presence is there. So, Father, I pray today especially for each one that is walking through uh, one of these seasons that you would be especially present with them, that they would see your hand of grace. They would see your fingerprints around the circumstances. They would see your mercies being new every morning and your faithfulness there, albeit not in exactly the way they would choose. And for each of us, that we would be strengthened and equipped as we walk through these seasons of our lives to not just endure it, to grow from it. And we do eagerly await that day when there will be an explosion of life, where everything will be put to rest and we will see you. All sin, all difficulty, all oppression, all tension will be put to rest and we will rest in you. And so we're grateful and we await that day. Father, there's a church, many needs, and I, I, I lift them up to you, many people who are sick and cancer and and many other ailments and i pray that you would you would heal bring uh, strength for recovery um thank you for the new life that's come and uh, and i pray that for them and the new parents that give them strength as they care for them i pray for the teams and the people who are going from here that you would those who have gone and those who will go that you would take them with their in their service and their words and their actions to those places and, and, and leave a footprint there of your kingdom and your gospel I, I pray and i lift them up and pray for for all the things the protection and strength in those things so i lift them up to you father we're grateful that you have spoken that you are near your people and so we we say thank you and ask for your strength today in jesus name amen
ask you to stand for the benediction. Uh, as always, uh, we, we do want to pray with you and we have elders that will be up front here. If you feel